Welcome to Radio Free Sunroot. You're listening to the interview podcast, Voices for Nature and Peace, where we discuss issues of ecology, empire, justice, and consciousness. We feature a variety of guests who are aware of the challenges of our time and who are working to address them. Here's your host, Calibri Ter Sonnenblum. Episode 2, In Defense of Prairie Dogs, with guest Deanna Meyer. Deanna Meyer is a longtime environmental activist. Born and raised in Colorado, she gained a deep appreciation for the land and its living communities from a young age, but she came to recognize that these precious things were under attack. In 2015, she began her fight on behalf of Colorado prairie dog populations by launching a campaign to protect a large colony from extermination in Castle Rock. She has been campaigning and advocating for numerous colonies and prairie communities ever since and intends to do whatever it takes to save them. Deanna is the executive director of Prairie Protection Colorado, which advocates for prairie dogs by drawing attention to and organizing against the mass exterminations of colonies along the Front Range. PPC organizes on the ground and works with local governments, the media, and various legal channels to protect the last remaining prairie dog colonies. I first made contact with Deanna in November 2017 while researching an article about the heartless and gruesome destruction of a prairie dog colony in Longmont, Colorado by a construction company. We spoke on March 4, 2020, and the topics we covered included Prairie Protection Colorado's mission and activities, the ecological importance of prairie dogs, the crimes against nature committed by the state of Colorado and the federal government, and the big picture of U.S. American culture, and particularly its deranged war on the environment. Deanna's dedication is readily apparent in her passion, and it was a real pleasure to talk with someone who is so articulate about resistance. Well, hello, Deanna, and thank you for being on my show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. You are part of an organization called Prairie Protection Colorado? Yes, I am. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that organization, just in general, what you do, and then we'll get into some specific stuff later? Sure. Well, we work on protecting prairie ecosystems, and also we focus on Colorado's wildlife. And I originally started by trying to save a prairie dog colony that was in Castle Rock. And so we got busy and mounted a big, huge campaign and were somewhat successful. I mean, as environmentalists, we always seem to do a lot. We always seem to lose in the big picture, but we were able to save hundreds of prairie dogs from a mall site that had thousands of prairie dogs in it. And just from there, we went on and continued to look at prairie dogs and fight for the smaller colonies up and down the front range. And in turn, trying we highlight the systemic problems with this culture. And um, the prairie dogs are a really good example of that systemic problem because we all see them and we all see them being brutally slaughtered and poisoned and destroyed for uh, development really clearly along the front range. Anybody can see that just driving down the road. They'll run into a colony or two that are in trouble. 
So we try to really highlight through our organization the problems and, and educate people about how our wildlife officials and the people who are controlling or in, in charge with protecting wildlife throughout the West are really the same people that are destroying and killing our wildlife and treating them as if they're just a thrill for people to kill. Right. So when you say the front range for people who live in other parts of the, of the country or the world, well, that's the eastern face of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado? Yes. That opens out into the Great Plains. Right. So we're talking about the whole like Denver, Colorado Springs, Castle Rock, Boulder. So all of the towns that kind of are pushed up against that, that eastern side of the Rocky Mountains and um, in all those areas right now are being like a, just astronomically destroyed from development and growth. Right, because it's a fast-growing area. Yes. So the prairie in that part of the United States is short grass prairie, I believe. Yeah, there's some short grass and some long grass prairies when you go east further. But on the Front Range, a lot of that's considered the short grass prairies. It depends on who you're talking to. Lots of uh, wildlife officials who manage uh, areas will try and tell us that the that prairie dogs don't belong on a lot of this open space because it really was originally long grass. So it just kind of depends on who you're talking with and and you know what kind of records they have because it's pretty much all unrecognizable right now. <laughs> but yes, generally this whole area on the Front Range did have originally a lot of prairie dogs. Right. And as an ecosystem type, prairie is tremendously limited in its range as to what it once was. Yes. It's unrecognizable. Yeah. And so when you talk about the threats to the area, you've already mentioned the urban, suburban, like the sprawl kind of threats and the malls and this and that. But it's also agriculture must be a huge part of that. Yeah, definitely. Ranching probably in particular. Yes. Cowboys hate prairie dogs, don't they? Yes. I, that's where all the horrible myths and lies about prairie dogs come from is definitely the agricultural colonizing mindset. So the people who really hate prairie dogs, coyotes, you know, mountain lions, bobcats, that's all coming from the ranching mentality, or you could say the colonizing mentality. And unfortunately, those are the people who are controlling the laws and who are making decisions about what happens with the wildlife that's remaining in our state and everywhere else. Right. And the, the state of the wildlife is fairly dire at this point, I'm assuming. I know that, well, because you might recall, uh, we, we communicated before over email a couple years back. I wrote a story um, for Counterpunch about, about a particular prairie dog colony that was being assaulted. And I remember during my research at that point, finding out that prairie dogs have been extirpated throughout over 90% of their historical range, I believe. Yeah about 95% of the range and then about 99% of the population of prairie dogs historic population is gone. Right. So they're less than 1%. And same with the grasslands. You could say that that's pretty reflective. Uh, you'll see more conservative estimates where they're saying like five, they still have about 5% of their range, but I think it's closer to one. And then you'll see other research that does show that it's closer to 1%. Of right. There. But their populations are down to less than 1% at this point. So shouldn't prairie dogs be considered an endangered species at this point? Definitely, they should. Various groups have tried to get them listed as endangered species. And I think the last time that they tried was in like 2000 or maybe it was even 1999. And what happened was 
the government said that they didn't have money to implement. They agreed that they would match all of the criteria, uh, which happens to a lot of different species. And instead of it, that they, and that they didn't have the financial means to implement anything on the ESA to protect them under the Endangered Species Act. So what they did instead was wrote up policies. And so all the 12 states that still have prairie dogs remaining in them wrote up like Colorado has the Colorado Grassland Species Plan is what it's called. And they kind of laid out how they were going to go about preserving prairie dogs. And of course, you would at first you saw some various counties writing up prairie dog management plans, they would call them, which always means killing plans. Right. But uh, and they did that because there was money coming in. So we have things like in Douglas County, they do have a prairie dog management plan where they they talk about the importance of the species in Boulder. They have the same in Broomfield. They have some, you know, um, so in various counties, they will have some prairie dog protections uh, that are really just policies. And unfortunately, plans and policies aren't you don't have to follow them. They're not legally enforceable. So it's wrapping. It was wrapping uh, paper, you know, and that the goals were to try to get 25% of open space lands in each county teeming with prairie dogs. And nobody has that. And nobody and nobody's trying. So it's very ineffective. You know, we have the Gunnison prairie dogs are listed as like a tier two species. So they have a little bit more protections, but they're being, we just found some information, open records where wildlife services is just slaughtering them throughout Colorado Springs. So I, and I'm sure other places too, but as, as you know, most species should and would qualify for endangered species listings right now. Prairie dogs certainly are down to a low number and people refuse to, to deal with it because they see them. Because you can drive around and you'll see these tiny little remnants who are just trying as hard as they can, these these colonies, these families, to live in little lots because that's all they have left now because they've been pushed out of so much land. And like you said, especially in the east, a lot of them just destroyed for crops, monocrops. Right. So what we have here is a situation where the government at all levels, from the federal government to the state government of of Colorado, to the county governments, and it sounds like even the municipalities, they all could be doing something to help the prairie dogs, and yet it sounds like none of them are. Yeah, that's right. The problem with the whole idea is that these law, the regulatory system, of course, is set up. And I mean, some people don't know this, and they get they will learn it. Everybody will learn this if they start being activists and they start trying to make some change. And uh, it's just the whole regulatory system is set up to benefit corporate structure and to destroy. And so when you when activists go out and try really hard to get people maybe to implement some of these policies that have been written as a pretty little piece of paper to read, because that's about what as far as they get, they might get little bones. I mean, like in Longmont, that colony that you did that wonderful article about a couple of years ago, you know, they ended up just killing and, and destroying that whole colony because in how they did that, what they were kind of locked in through a regulatory ordinance in Longmont that basically said, if you're building and you've filed for permitting, then you have to try to relocate prairie dogs on your area. And if you can't find a place, 
then you can use lethal means. But if there's a place available, you cannot. And we found a place for that, those prairie dogs. And so what the developer was so against moving them, especially with us, because we are such strong advocates, or he probably would have been with anybody, he hated prairie dogs, that he actually pulled the permit. And as soon as he pulled the permit, he wasn't under that obligation and he killed them all. So, I mean, he gave up his million dollar project to kill them. That's how devoted he was to that. But the point is, and they passed laws in Boulder City where you have to actually get a permit to kill prairie dogs. And Longmont has passed that now too. But it really just, if somebody goes in and tries to kill them, it doesn't help. But it might help one colony here and there. Same with what I did with Castle Rock. Like I saved I have hundreds of prairie dogs, uh, thankfully, that live on my land right now that were survivors from a poisoning in Castle Rock. You know, but it's not it's it was so much work. And when you look at the big picture, all of these little all of these things that we work so, so, so hard to do and the to protect is just going to be it's short term. And the laws really aren't set up to protect any any life. Right. It seems like the story of uh, environmental efforts over the last 50 years have been that we have little victories when we have them and that too often they're they're temporary. Right. And they're extraordinarily difficult to master. I mean, like the Castle Castle Rock campaign that I did when I saved the prairie dogs that are up here now, I mean, nearly wiped me out. And I'm actually amazed that I kept going on because it was extraordinary. I was doing like 20 hour days every day for four months. Wow. Oh yeah. And I was working hard because we did referendums. We did, we, we used all the political tools that were on our hands to, and and to stop the slaughter of this colony, or at least to bend that uh, developer over a barrel pretty good um, to make sure that he would understand the consequences of killing this colony. Yeah, it's it's a tough one in the long run. And that's also why like I'm part of Deep Green Resistance. I'm on that board too. Right. And I do really believe that we're gonna have to come to grips as environmentalists and 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 learn how to understand that life is more important than this culture is. We have to try to dismantle this entire system because as long as it's going along, it's going to be killing everything and we're gonna have no future. Nobody is if we continue to allow them to do this. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about that that general point for sure, that the system has been destructive, uh, anti-life uh, for millennia at this point. I would say that a big turn towards destructiveness happened with the Neolithic revolution, with the agricultural revolution. It was at that point where not only our actions, but also our attitudes uh, towards the planet changed. And rather than being in a more cooperative place with life around us, that's when the the domineering started. Yes. Oh, that all took a a big step up. You know, obviously, when um, Europeans came to to this continent, uh, because they'd kind of used everything up in in Europe at that point, you know, like they'd cut down all their forests, they'd overfished all their streams, they were kind of running out, you know. So when they found the the Americas, what they ended up calling the Americas, they were, they were thrilled because they could start bringing those resources back. One of the first things they were bringing back to Europe was trees, was lumber, because they just didn't have them there anymore, you know, from agriculture, from shipbuilding, and then from burning trees for for smelting metals and all that. But yeah, and then and then here in the Americas, we had the ranching come 
like the I mean that was a big example you know that that that's one of the as you know one of the worst elements in the western states is the ranching that came from the southwest with the spanish uh conquistadors and the missionaries and then and then came east from the other europeans and and I think Colorado kind of got is this kind of uh in the middle of that vice right there yeah and my understanding of the history is that it was the ranchers who formed the first uh, European governments in the area. So so they formed the territorial governments and then they helped form the state governments. They helped write the state constitutions. So the ranchers have been controlling the legislatures and the governments of the Western states since before they were states. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, they have that. That's a big problem, too. When you talk specifically about prairie dogs is that they're destructive. They are listed in that legislature legislation um, as destructive rodent pests and as a nuisance species. So and the whole goal was to kill them and to kill bears. And I mean, in Colorado, they used to put out because they had the what now is wildlife services started out as a. the biological survey, uh, and then it morphed into uh, pest and rodent control. All these, un- all these under things lying under this umbrella of uh, government control. And one of their main headquarters was here in Colorado. It was in New Mexico originally, then moved to Denver. Now it's in Fort Collins, and it's um, where they concoct poisons. Um, and they can they they have animals in there, and they test out these animals, all these different and new poisons, they kill, still do that. But they were throwing poisons all across the um, West in bait piles for predators. And then they laced them all in grains for the prairie dogs. So they were using like uh, arsenic and then they were using cyanide. And then they came up with this poison called 1080. This is all government, What who you're talking about. These ranchers who are running the legislators and who are running the legislation and the state laws and the constitutions in each of these states. And um, they would like, in, in, they would infect a bunch of dead horses. They'd take horse flesh. They had like 900 flesh stations in Colorado up and down the front range here where they would just throw out um, this horse flesh piles all over so that the mountain lions, the bears, the wolves would eat all the poison. And then they douse all the grains with the cyanide and dump them down all the burrows. So you could just, and they still are poisoning like crazy. You just have to look up wildlife services and see what their, the latest that they have up is the 2018 season. They killed over 2 million animals that they admit to using poisons mostly and uh, just like throwing it out in the grains for the agriculturalists so that the birds, so that they can kill, like they killed like 600 or 300,000 red winged blackbirds on and on. This is just a couple of years ago. And who knows how many they killed last year? You know, 60,000 coyotes. They poisoned that many prairie dog burrows. So it's still all like, well, you know, still active, the mentality. And we're just poisoning everything. We, not we, but I mean the the government and, you know, in service to these agriculturalists are just going out and doing their damnedest to kill you know, keystone species, which, of course, ends up killing everybody. Right. 
Oh, it's a horrific situation that you're describing. And mm-hmm. I try to keep up on these issues, but I wasn't aware of everything that you just mentioned. I think I remember that you mentioning online the 2018 report that came through, but I hadn't remembered all those numbers of them actually claiming 2 million dead animals, because surely it's more than that if that's what they're claiming. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I've noticed in my travels is that most people in the United States, because they live in cities, have no idea that this stuff is going on out there. Yeah. The news doesn't cover this stuff. The environmental issues aren't in the newspaper. They're not. They're just not part of the the, the media landscape in general. And then the fact that all of this behavior is just normal is also something which is unacknowledged. Yes. I mean, when it gets acknowledged, people get really upset. So when there was the predator and rodent control, and then it morphed into something else, it was Ronald Reagan who changed the name to Wildlife Services, because that's a trick, right? Because right. if the public did understand, like this that uh, this research center that I'm talking to you, or not research, this poison concoction center used to kill animals. They have coyotes locked in there. They have raccoons. And then they use the, if you go to their webpage, it's called the National Wildlife Research Center. And it's run under uh, APHIS, Wildlife Services. Wildlife Services is a branch under APHIS, which is Animal Plant Health Inspection Services or something like that within the United States Agricultural Department on a federal level. And they use those words like, oh, look, they have the National Wildlife Research Center sitting over here in Fort Collins. When you, They won't let anybody tour it. It's our building. And I, I mean, we're, we want to go down there and, and try to get a tour in there. They really are very closed about it. And then they tell the whole public, like if you go to their webpage, that they're trying what they're doing mainly is figuring out vaccines for animals so that they don't get maimed or they don't get sick, which is just not true. I mean, that a little bit of their work is on that, like plague. They do a very small portion of their money is spent towards those types of preventions. But the majority of that money is spent on trying to figure out how to kill an animal. So like when you see that poison, people probably, some people have heard of the poison 1080. And when you look at the research of that, and this was touched on on Coyote America, which is a really great book that I recommend to everybody if you're interested in the poisons. He does a great job in that book really explaining this whole process. But I mean, 1080 is called 1080 because that's how many times it took to use on an animal for it to be perfected, meaning for it to just knock down an animal dead. Often. So, yeah, and 1,080 times. And, and so they're, they're like keeping tabs on this. And the public for sure would be outraged. And that's what we're trying to do too, is to talk more about it. And it always, most environmental organizations will not talk about this stuff. For one thing, they get super top heavy. So they might start out grassroots and then they start getting really dependent on funding. And so they have to be collaborators. Like they cannot expose the truth because they need to be able to to collaborate with these groups in hopes the corporate structure and the government in hopes that they can get these little gains at the expense of the big picture. And so um, that's one reason because certainly people know and there are some groups that do talk about it and certainly like the, in, who are doing good work and who will take this up in court. But court gets so strung out too and environmentalists really have a hard time in court because they're not set up to do that. But yeah, if enough people really understood what was happening, you know, I mean, that it would be clear that revolutionary action is needed and necessary. It doesn't mean that they're going to do it because we're so comfortable. 
But if we really care, that's that's kind of where we need to go because, right. you know, they're they're killing everybody. People always think, well, that was a long time ago. It's like, no, they're still doing the same thing. So just just briefly, just to give people an idea about how some of this stuff works, could you describe just like, for example, what is the process or a process, a common process when they're going to go take out a prairie dog colony, how that goes? Yeah, usually what most people use in this state is called aluminum phosphide uh, or the brand label on that's called fumatoxin and it's phosphine gas. So there have been a couple instances in the United States and many more over the world where humans have died because this gas was applied too close to their home. So just in 2016, or no, maybe it was 2017, multiple seven people died in Texas because somebody applied it underneath the, their trailer. And the children and everybody in there who ingested it had a pretty horrible death. And a couple twins died in Utah when a pest applicator put it out there. So the point in me saying that story is just that it's extremely, it's, it's a dangerous chemical. It's phosphine gas. So, it, and it's an incredibly painful and prolonged method of killing. The reason why they use that is because it is cheap. It's one of the cheapest ways to poison a colony and it'll generally get 80 to 90% of the animals and kill them along with everybody else in their burrows. So keep in mind that prairie dogs are keystone species and numerous different beings live in those burrows. So you have all kinds of rabbits that live there, snakes live down there, you know, all, spiders, lizards, you know, any kind of reptiles, frogs. I mean, a lot of different, uh, all kinds, pre-bull mouse, other mice. I mean, any kind of, any, any kind of person who lives down there, snakes will be killed along with the prairie dogs. So, and that, it's like up to three days. Of oh tour. gosh, that's a long time. Yeah. So they're having all the same symptoms that a human would if they ingested phosphine, which, you know, is extraordinarily painful. It's vomiting, diarrhea, blood coming out of your orifice. I mean, so it's a, it's a terrible, terrible way to go. And these prairie dogs are – we could learn a lot from prairie dogs in terms of community because they are very communal animals. They have a very complex language, and they care very much for each other. And they like some prairie dogs. They don't like others. I mean, they, they are very complex beings, um, as most life are, but they're extraordinarily communal animals. They depend on each other for the calls and for protection. So they understand if a prairie dog starts chirping, they call them scouts. Some of them are scouts. And somebody always has to be on duty in a colony to look for any type of danger. And they let everybody know if they see any danger and on and on. But when they're in these these burrows horrified and somebody's packing, throwing in these tablets and then packing them in because they've got to throw them down in their burrows and then they have to pack their holes. They take a shovel and they throw dirt on it and they try to tamp it down as hard as they can. So it's really hard, try to make it hard for the prairie dogs to escape as they're breathing in this gas and panicking. Um, so that's that's the general method that is used for prairie dogs. Probably nine over ninety percent of the time, they're using fumatoxin, or or um, they have another phosphine gas that they put down there as well, which is zinc phosphide. And Wildlife Services, that's their favorite choice, what they use most of the time. In Boulder, they use um, on public lands they use carbon monoxide, so they use perk they call them perk machines. 
And it's just basically like four wheelers with an engine on it. And they put a hose down their holes and tamp one end and just run a bunch of carbon monoxide down it. So they die that way. That would be considered by the Humane Society of the United States the the proper way, the the least um, painful way to kill them. Right. But I always, you know, but it's the most humane method is what they would say, which humane and killing a healthy colony of prairie dogs don't really that doesn't match up. So, but anyway, that's so those are a couple methods, and then they've also used what they call rotinators, which they put gas down the burrows and then uh, blow them up so that they burned them to death. So that's another method that's wow. used. Yeah. Carbon dioxide, they'll trap them and say they're taking them to the raptors and the ferrets. And so they'll trap them maybe at 5% of the colony. That's probably all they ever get. And then they'll put them in a container and gas them on site with carbon dioxide, which is also a very extremely painful way to kill an animal. They suffer for like... It's way less painful than phosphide, but they suffer pretty severely for up to seven minutes. Wow. Yeah. So, the, and, and of course, any poison they can get to work, they use these two, two poisons that are used throughout the West, which are awful, are called Rosol and Kaput. Kaput. And, yep. Yep. And those are probably the worst that I've seen. I've seen them used a few times just up and down the front range. And they always, the applicators have always misapplied them, meaning that I see them on top of the burrows. I've watched magpies eat these, these uh, grains. And um, these take 20 to 30 days to kill the animal after ingestion. And it's an anticoagulant. So, and it's extraordinarily painful. These animals literally bleed from the inside out. So, and I, I never really understood, like I heard that, like, oh, it'll bleed from the inside out. And I never really, it never really hit me until we were watching a colony about 20 some days after poisoning. And the prairie dogs were literally sitting on top of their burrows and blood was seeping out of their skin as they took their last breaths. It was, it was horrific and just heartbreaking. And that poison is used quite often by really, I mean, probably by wildlife services, but a lot of these developers and uh, ranchers, it's a restricted use pesticide. So they have to um, hire somebody, but that one is like a hundred percent effective. I mean, there were no survivors at the three sites that we've witnessed. None. Zero. That must've been really hard to go and, and see that happening. It was really, really awful. And to just think that that's legal that they can just put that in and just the birds for sure. Those animals that are dying on the surface of which we witnessed several of them dying on the surface. As soon as a raptor or an owl, a coyote, a fox, as soon as they get that animal, they will surely, and they've said that they will die too. Um, the same way, you know, 20 to 30 days, that can be like anywhere from three to 30 days upon ingestion that an animal can die from those anticoagulants. But the, the, and you would never be able to connect it to the point of poisoning because they're going to be far away, whether it's three days or 30 from the site. And, you know, and then it's a big trying to prove that it's the poison is another issue. It's pretty nightmarish what they do to destroy these communities and everybody suffers that depends on it, which of course, prairie dogs support up to like 180 other species and probably more. And so 
any of those species who depend on the prairie dogs who are unfortunate enough to be in the area when somebody's killing all of them will suffer the same. Right, because the, the, the prairie dogs are what you called earlier a keystone species. Yep. Right. Yeah. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what that is and then how the, the prairie dogs fit into that. Yeah. Well, a keystone species is when a, a certain species of animal is essential to a prairie ecosystem. So if, they're lo- if they are lost from the prairies, then everything else falls apart. So they're like the necessary like structure as necessary component of life. So if you take out that keystone species, then everything else will suffer and die as well. I mean, it just basically the whole thing falls apart. It's like having a big like Jenga block or whatever, and you pull one out that's essential on the foundation and everything's going to come crashing down. That's what happens with keystone species. As soon as you pull them out of the picture, everybody else has a struggle and, and doesn't do so well and needs to go either find another colony like that too. So that's why we see like black-footed ferrets absolutely are 100% dependent on large prairie dog colonies. I'm talking like 20,000 acres would be the low point is what a biologist have stated many times. Then you see like the Fish and Wildlife Department has whittled down like when you see uh, ferret introductions. Ferrets were almost complete thought to have been extinct. They found a small group of ferrets. I believe it was in Wyoming. They took that small group and bred them. So they're incredibly inbred. That's all they had left. Often. And now the ferret facility in Colorado even where they breed them. And then they introduce them into colonies of prairie dogs and they always fail. Eventually they always fail. And that's because the what they require now, it used to be 1500 acres. Now they whittled it down to, or to 1000 to be able to have uh, introduce these and they don't have numbers on the prairie dogs. So as long as you can show like you have around 1500 or now it's 1000 acres of some prairie dogs on your land, then your land could qualify or public land, wherever it is like Rocky mountain arsenal has prairie dog has ferrets right now. They have some down in Pueblo, but they don't really, you know, they don't count. They don't talk about numbers of prairie dogs. So the eventually I mean, one ferret needs about two to 300 prairie dogs a year to eat or, or a family of ferrets anyway. So they've got these, they're letting them loose on possibly very sparsely populated colonies, which isn't going to fare well for the ferret in the long run. And neither is a thousand acres. And that's why we see them pretty much struggling. And then all these uh, ferret reintroduction programs failing and they don't really talk about that. But we talk burrowing owls are another species that absolutely needs prairie dog burrows for their survival and they're threatened. And then we see uh, like peregrine falcons need the prairie dogs, swift foxes need prairie dogs. So we're seeing a, a huge host of animals who are suffering a lot because of the, the prairie dog suffering and being poisoned in the mass poisoning campaign. So, and not only the keystone species isn't just for the, it's not just the animals that they affect, it's the soils, it's the plants. Um, so like with prairie dogs, the Navajo and the Hopi used to always say like, if you kill to the white, to the colonizers, if you kill all the prairie dogs, there will be no more rain. And so Bill Mollison, a permaculturist looked into that 
quote, uh, and Stephen Booner looked into it a lot too. And they wanted to know like, what, what was the relevance of that? Because of course, most of everything that has been known from they, indigenous people knew what they were talking about. So what did that mean? And then they found out that because, which makes sense when you think about it, but right now, because prairie dogs have this huge role on the plains and on the short grass prairies and, and long grass prairies, they were out there too, in that they kept the grasses down, right? So that there weren't huge, huge fires that could sweep across the prairies. It kept buffalo and all kinds of animals pretty safe um, during fires because they would hang out on these colonies that were cut down because prairie dogs always have to keep the grass real short so they can see for far distances. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. So they, yeah. they're not, are they eating the grass or are they just uh, yes, trimming they it? it? And they also trim it. Oh, uh, okay. So, yeah. But they do, if you know, you can always tell where a prairie dog colony is by just paying attention to the vegetation. So in some places you'll see long grass and then all of a sudden you'll see a splotch of, of prairie of short grass. And that's, and then you'll see the burrows and you'll be like, oh, okay, that's why the grass is shorter around the prairie dogs. Buffalo and antelope and all of the ungulates prefer, like up here, I have elk and the elk love to go graze on those colonies because the grass, when they trim grass, it's sweeter and it also absorbs more um, minerals and nutrients. So they've done lots of studies where they show cows who graze on um, prairie dog colonies versus not prairie dog colonies and find that they the cows are healthier on the prairie dog side just because the, the, actual, the aeration of the soil the keeping the the grass short and being able to loosen up the minerals in the ground for the absorption of the plants is makes healthier grazing uh, material for those animals and it's sweeter it tastes sweeter when the grass is just coming is, is clipped and is kept close to the ground like that and is freshly growing out like the, it's fresh sprigs coming out of the ground and, and animals of course prefer that ungulates prefer that but on top of that too all the holes just Prior to colonization, they have estimated that there was probably around 5 billion prairie dogs. On wow. 5 billion. They found one huge colony in Texas. I think it was 25,000 square miles of prairie dog colony of the same related colony. There's just thousands and thousands of holes. These burrows and where they were living created all these fissures throughout the soil, which did part of what I'm talking about when we're talking about the uptake of minerals in the grasses, bringing more of the healthy minerals towards the surface. But it also created an area for groundwater where a couple things that would happen is that the moon would, just like it does with the ocean, would be able to pull all that groundwater up through those fissures in the ground towards the surface and create condensation much like rainforests do. Wow. yeah, so the water comes up and down with the pull of the tide from the moon or with the pull of the moon and it could elevate and rise with uh, those those burrowing features. Burrows are extraordinarily important and also rain. So when it rains, like now, we keep seeing more and more people plugged up the whole prairies. When it rained, when there was uh, thousands and thousands of burrows, the rainwater could go down into those burrows and get back into the groundwater over a large area of land where now we see massive runoff. So, you know, especially, I mean, we all see that in towns with pavement or whatever, which is just really, really detrimental, but it goes down into one area, it goes and it flows into whatever the creek is. And then what we see is like, then it's up, you know, they uptake it for agriculture and poison the water and use it for fracking or whatever. So the groundwater, it keeps getting lower and lower and lower. You know, we're just about to hit dry here 
in Colorado, people recognize you can go into any council meeting or any county commissioner meeting and water is always a topic because we're running out and everybody's admitting that. But we're just making that process even faster by destroying these aerators of our soil. In the West, you need, this is a dry area. And prairie dogs played a huge role in water table and in water functioning and in precipitation. And th- th- that is what happened after, you know, the, the Indians and the native people, indigenous people, whichever word you want to say, had warned us over and over the Dust Bowl happens. They killed most of the prairie dogs. And, and it's true. You can't, the prairie just can't take that. They need that. They need the filtration system that they provide. That's amazing. I, I knew that the tunnels had an effect on the aeration of the soil. I had no idea that the prairie dogs were so connected to the water supplies as well. That's incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. In a state of shock after the war, we interrupt our program for a brief message. If you appreciate this podcast, please consider supporting Colibri on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Colibri. That's K-O-L-L-I-B-R-I. And now, back to our regularly scheduled... You know, I, I hear things like that, or I, or I hear people, you know, who are knowledgeable talk about the fire ecology of Western forests, for example, and all the different creatures who depend on burnt forests for survival. And I look at these things, and I, I have moments where I'm just overwhelmed at what a beautiful uh, planet this was, and what a beautiful place this continent was before the colonizers arrived. Right. Right. It's heartbreaking to even think about it because it was so unrecognizable for one, like Derek Jensen talks a lot about like these disappearing baselines. We don't know what, what that could have even meant to have, you know, flocks of birds. So, you know, so large that they darkened the sun for days at a time, made it look like shade, you know, from birds and that, and and the bison and the prairie dogs and all of the fish coming up the rivers and the antelope and the wolves. I mean, we, we never hear wolves anymore. So it's all like, it's, it's something I think all of us should think about all the time. When I look out at my forest, I'm really lucky because I live in the forest, but I look out and I always think like, I wonder what you were like before, you know, like 120 and it's not that long either, which is really upsetting. It's like 120 years is all it took here, like for this culture to absolutely devastate the living community. You know, the wolves, there used to be Gunnison prairie dogs up here. There were beaver where I live everywhere. Um, these keystone, keystone species, mountain lions, bobcats, these are all keystones. And they've been hounded in coyotes, you know, and the wolves and the coyotes, that balance too. These, all of these animals have been completely terrorized and driven out. And in the end, it's going to, uh, we're all a part of life. And I think we kind of forget that. And part of the way that it's so successful is because we are able to not, uh, most people, I mean, I think you and I are excluded from that and probably your audience who's listening to this, but most people take comfort in the idea that they're, that they don't have to know what was. And part of the, I think the, the sickness, um, the colonial sickness of that is that it, and it, and the hatred that we have is because if people don't want to know or think about or deal with what we've done 
what that that's that's it's 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 a sad sad thing and if we just don't have to see it and we just don't have to recognize it then maybe it won't hurt so much you know and and i'm the opposite of that i want to know but it is really just mag it's just horrific and so huge to think about what was here 120 to 150 years ago that's such a short period of time for such a loss. Yeah, it was it was not long ago. Most people don't realize that, for example, California was uh, very sparsely populated in terms of colonizers until 1849, until the gold rush. It was, it was after that that you had a tremendous number of people uh, moving into the area and then the genocide of the of the natives that took native americans that took place at that point and then the the wholesale extraction of as many resources as possible but that wasn't that long ago that just was not that long ago that 1849 that's only 160 years ago or whatever and you know yeah previous to that there were hundreds of tribes who, who who lived there you know millions of people living a completely different way and I think that I've really appreciated. I I grew up in in, in Nebraska and I lived on the East Coast, but I've been I moved out to the West Coast in uh, 2001. And one thing I really appreciated about moving out there and, and exploring the areas, the the areas outside of the cities, the wild areas, was just that you can still see something of what was there before. Back east, not really so much. You know the famous New England fall colors. Uh, that's a mix of uh, native trees and introduced trees that didn't actually exist before they, they arrived, you know? So uh, the further east you are in the country, it seems like the less of an appreciation there is in general for the environment, in part just because there's there's almost nothing wild that's that's left there. But the other thing that, that I've appreciated about being in the West too is that there are more opportunities to meet Native American people and to come into contact with their cultures. And this has shown me, uh, as well as reading I've done, has shown me that when we look at the destruction that we're doing and the killing of these animals and the destruction of these ecosystems, we can't just be like, oh, that's just how people are. Oh, that's just human nature. It's like, well, but no, it's not human nature because here's some humans, no less human than anyone else who did not live like that. Right. I'm reading for the second or third time, which is just such a great book, but uh, Columbus and Other Cannibals by Jack Forbes. Oh, I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, I think you'd like it. I mean, he talks about the, he calls it the cannibal sickness. And Watiko is the word he uses, or Wetigo. He just describes about how it's a mentality, like a, a colonizing mentality of insane people. This isn't insane. This is not what we're doing in terms of destruction and growing and and killing is is an illness. It's it's a disease, and it's very contagious. That's he he explains just you know how that that happens, or and we all kind of can see it, but. It is pretty magnificent in scale and very, very detrimental to all that. And the, the what it brings me back to, like in terms of this conversation too, is just like the idea that what happened in California, that genocide that happened 150 years ago, or in Colorado it was a couple hundred years ago, but where I'm living in Sedalia, this place didn't get hit to, real hard till the 1880s. Wow. But um, but Denver sure did, you know. And and but but to think about, we don't talk about that. 
You know, like I read the an American Genocide, which goes through all the killing that happened in California and the documentation of it and the awards that were given out to people who could bring back a hand or a nose or scalp or whatever to prove who they killed. They'd get paid for it. And they do that with trapping still today with animals in, in, in Colorado anyway. Other states, they used to offer like prizes, you know, if you or you'd get money if you went to the local uh, government bureau there, the wildlife officials and brought in a remnants of the animals that you killed. If there are certain animals, they just did that, I believe, in South Dakota this past year. Like if you brought in the tail of the a badger or whatever they were after, then you'd get paid cash. Wow. Same thing with the humans in California. And in Colorado and all of those places, there was incentives. But to think that we don't, this is not taught to any of us in school. It's not taught at all in our cultural stories that are blasted out on Netflix <laughs> right. or on our mainstream channels. And if people knew, if kids, there a lot of the, if, if people were actually educated, I think that kids would enjoy school more because it would be truth and it would be more interesting and more like uh, they, they'd want to do something, right? So they'd feel more active. Um, and I think most people, if they would take time to think about what used to be and where we are now, that we might be a little bit more uh, motivated to do something, but maybe not. I mean, like I said, it's like a kind of a disease that's running through everybody. I mean, we all seem to be pretty aware that our climate is detrimentally taking a shift for the worst that's going to affect everybody. Um, but there's not much being done except talk about how we can get more energy and continue the same pattern of living, you know, and be able to have the same conveniences and luxury just in maybe a better, nicer way, which is not possible. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not, not at all possible. No. No, definitely not. And the word that you mentioned before, it's a good word because there isn't really a word in English like it. Wetico or Wetico, that's W-E-T-I-K-O. Right. Right. Do you know who, who introduced that word first? I think that comes from Lakota and a couple other indigenous traditions. He talks about it more in the book. Jack Forbes wrote that book, Columbus and Other Cannibals. And what what that means is uh, the cannibal sickness. So he explains like during the 20th century, especially when you look at it, like what happened with with Hitler, what happens in Japan, what happened with uh, just millions and millions of people and all the indigenous uh, people all around the globe in America, that this this illness just eats, what it does is it eats life. It eats ourselves. It eats humans. And it is certainly eight millions and millions of people in war. That book was a life changer for me. One of those like books where it's like, wow, yeah. Yeah, like this is actually a disease like rabies. I mean, like people get it and you can't really get through to them. And it's really like you're serving the God of profit. And um, you forget that we're related to those grasses and those trees and those prairie dogs and those wolves and those buffalo and the salmon and the ravens and all that. That's all we're those are our relations. And we actually all of us back in our history for the majority of the time that we have been on this planet. So for the 90, about 98 to 99% of the time humans have lived here, we have lived in a relationship with other forms of life. And that's what's missing in this colonizer culture, this wet-a-go behavior. 
is that we don't, we see everything as a resource, not as someone to enter into relationship with. And we've lost that language. I mean, all of the traditional people have known that trees teach us things. They actually communicate. Uh, so do the plants and so do the prairie dogs and so do our dreams. And so does everything in life. It taught it, it. We used to be friends and companions and relations and in community with all of those voices. And we have silenced those voices and we have silenced our history and we have silenced what's happened. And we are not re- We are not taking responsibility most people are just not in this culture. It's very hard to because our language is a language of colonization. So it, it places everything as objects and subjects, you know, and, and it, it tries everything that this culture of colonization has done, tries to destroy the fact that we are related to everybody and that we have a responsibility to them. Because if we understood those facts, which are biological realities. And we know that in our blood that's pumping through our body, we know all this. If, but if we came and reckoned with that, we would have to take responsibility and this couldn't go on much longer. That should have happened hundreds of years ago. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I, I I totally, I hear everything that you're, that that you're saying here. I've given all of this long thought and I've also spent as much time as I could and, and effort exploring how any of this sickness is is in me and needs to be extricated as well. Because simply for having been raised here, there were, you know, with the limited language, with the domineering culture, of course, there was an attempt from a very early age to put all these ideas into me, you know? And so I've had to deal with that over time of finding these things and being like, oh, look at that thing. I don't like that. You know, I don't, that's not me. That's something that was culturally put there. And the responsible thing, I like that you brought that word up. The responsible thing for me to do at this point is to identify that and then, and then push that out, you know? Definitely. Definitely. That's, and it's really, it's also so hard. It's really sad because we biologically as humans, which we're not acting like humans, <laughs> but or this culture dehumanizes us. Right. But as human beings, we need relationship with each other, with the land, with the people we eat. We need that relationship. And that has been severed from us. So yeah, like in my life, it's so hard to have a relationship with people, which is really important. So you end up feeling like, like really lonely or whatever, as you should, because we're not, that's not the way we're supposed to be. Right. And you constantly have to work on that, that thought. And you, it can feel very daunting and alone and sad. And it's just, it's a real, uh, it's, it's, it is a real sadness to know that there's so much more out there that we should be fulfilled with and that we should be in communion with and that it's very difficult and it takes a lot of work to get that. But I'm also very happy that I'm one of those people who understand that and can because I've had some really good experiences and I have been able to open up to those other voices and understand and see that things aren't just these random coincidences that happen all over. So, so in one way, I'm very happy for that because I'm not a zombie of which many people seem to be like, they seem like not even to care, but they're so far gone in that sickness that they can't really wake up from it. Uh, but it's also very hard to like 
no as well. I mean, it's a hard, that's a bird. That's a, I don't know that burden's the right word, but for people like you and me and Derek and everybody who's awake and alive, a lot of environmentalists, people who are fighting really hard and understand the detrimental situation we're in, it's quite a heartbreak too, to know what has been lost, the, to know what we, we, to know how many others have been, you know, detrimentally harmed, how many people are going extinct because of this behavior? You know, all of that's very hard to contemplate and, and understand. And, you know, it is. It's heartbreaking. And, you know, I see the the studies that come out and they say, oh, we've lost, you know, 50 percent of our wildlife since 1970, you know. And it's right. like, well, I was born in 1969. So that's what my life has been about, has been about this like that's been the background of my life has been this abrupt and drastic fall in, in, in population of wild animals that's happened. And I feel like I remember a lot more butterflies when I was a kid, Definitely, you know, and I definitely have moved around and lived in different places in this net, but it's just like, well, no, it does. It just, it feels like there's less, less insects around. I was an insect lover as a child. I was a plant lover too. I was very lucky. My mother uh, instilled the love of, of, of plants in me. And then I think perhaps maybe I was just born with something because I also have, uh, as you alluded to, I, I've heard, I've heard voices. I, I've, um, uh, I've, I've heard trees speak this sort of thing. So I, I, I know that those things happen as well. But I also know that that for for most people in our culture, there isn't an opportunity for that to happen because they're just not even around trees, period. Right. Right. And it's uh, like, where where were you raised? Were you raised in Colorado? No, I was raised in Nebraska. Okay. Yeah. Well, when in Colorado, because I was born in 71. So in Colorado, I remember very distinctly as a child that we would have to always get out in the spring and the summer and the fall and clean our windshields uh, to see like right. the wipers didn't do it because we would hit so many insects and now there's nothing. I mean, there's, it's very rare to hit an insect and that's just horrifying. It's horrifying to me yeah. that that, that right there, I mean, that, that's just like pure, like evidence of the loss and then when you say like the 1970, we've lost 50 to 60% of all the wildlife. What about, think about what we lost from 18, from like 1400 to, to 1970. Right. You know, so, I mean, and we're just, it's, it's just, it's heartbreaking really. Yeah. I also am heartbroken. Well, not heartbroken. It's not the right word. Disappointed or something in that trying to to grapple with other people about what the causes of these things are and therefore how to go about addressing them earlier in the at the beginning of the conversation we talked about how government at all levels is involved with the destruction and the killing of all these creatures and the destruction of these habitats you know you know kind of the high watermark of environmental law honestly was like the was the early 70s a lot of things that Nixon passed, surprisingly enough. He's the one who put in the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, the EPA, and those structures were used to hold off some damage in the 50 years that followed, but really they had their heyday in the 60s and 70s, and since the 80s they've been eroding them down to nothing, and we're seeing kind of the last parts of that regulatory protection being dismantled now under the um, current presidential administration. And, and they're doing all of this to come in 
you know, for resource extraction, basically, you know, it's like, how can we get every last bit of oil and coal and natural gas out of the ground? And how can we clear every last acre of wilderness in the West so that it can be ranched? Right. And or, you know, taken for the oil industry, whatever. Yeah, it's like he who dies with the most toys wins is like the mentality that I'm seeing right now. Because it's like most people have got to know, maybe not, but it seems like most people know that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet and we're down to the dregs. We're on the last dregs of the resources of this entire planet. And those are being taken faster and faster each and every day. And the environmentalists who care are doing stupid things like celebrating industry. They're like, oh, hey, we're going to put – three million solar panels on top of a very fragile desert uh you know and and they think that's a victory it's like no you guys so it's very it is very sad because most of the environmental groups who are you know out there and and they're just they they have been co-opted in such an incredible and unseeming way i mean it's just like you couldn't have done as more um brilliant move if you were a sociopathic corporation than what's happening now with the environmental movement and people are too numbed out with social media and too numbed out with their lives and with their gadgets and with their drama and with the like the divisions that are happening on the left about things that are just insane and that it's that is probably one of the most heartbreaking things because it's like if we just understood the gravity of the situation that we are in right now, which is pretty bad, oh my, pretty bad, then we should be fighting with all we have and using any means necessary to stop these extractive industries from sucking the last of our mother's blood out of her body. And it's like instead we're just crazy. You know, people are crazy. There and and especially in this in, in the United States and a lot of across. I mean, I'm not saying everybody. There's lots of people who get this too. But the likelihood of people mobilizing on a scale of which they're serious about taking different tactics and strategies to combat those who are killing the planet, it's just it's very disheartening to see where we're at in terms of that. In terms of people actually coming to grips with that and being able to strategically think about things like that. And I think a lot of that too is people can't think very clearly when they're eating junk food all the time and they're breathing more and more polluted and and carbon infested air and their their brains are actually not able to even function after they're addicted to social media and used to all that stuff. So it's just we're we're living in a very interesting and heartbreaking time. I, I see exactly what you're talking about. With uh, since since the '90s, I've I've felt that the the three things that were sort of most destructive to Americans were at that time television, to which we now add the internet and social media, and then the junk food, which was has 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 become more poisoned since since then, and then the the actual geography in which people live, uh, the the suburbs and the car centric culture and how that in itself is very alienating from one's immediate environment, you know? Definitely. So all three of those things have kind of gotten worse uh, in a sense uh, since that time. And, uh, you know, it's you know intriguing to talk to someone uh, like you who's about my age who, who definitely remembers before the internet, definitely remembers before social media and can 
can can look at these things and be like, okay, I, I remember all sorts of promises being made. I remember all sorts of predictions being made about how great things are going to be, and we haven't seen any of that. Instead, what we've seen is a continuing dissolution of any sense in the culture. Yes. Bread and circuses at the end of empire is what it looks like to me. I mean, you got this. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, Trump, I mean, not like any of them are all that great. Trump is an entertainment piece, but my gosh, you guys, and we're about to like, he'll be elected again unless the economy crashes, you know, is my guess. Yeah. I, and, I would guess that too. Yeah. But it's like, you know, just don't get more crazy than this. And then the leftist fighting about things that is like, we we can't unite like to say hey we're here we want to protect life how about just that no we're going to fight about uh everything yeah well we've become too human centric on the left you know yes. I, and yes. we've we've forgotten that we need to be fighting for all of our relations and only yes. when all of our relations are healthy and thriving are we going to be healthy and thriving and then a lot of these conflicts that we're having will either go away or much more easily be solved because we'll be living healthier lifestyles ourselves you know right i mean it's like we're in an insane asylum eating poisonous food and 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 arguing about things so well I mean, so few people are able to, as you said, so few people are able to even think uh, clearly at this point because right. of the, because of all of these, because of all of these elements. But the yeah. the empire bit. Uh, sometimes I think about that, and I'm like, well, there are also these larger trends and larger forces that are always in motion that are that are beyond the reach of of, of individuals and. The history of declining empires is well documented <laughs> and goes back thousands of years. The average yeah. empire lasts about 220 years. We're over, we're due. And there doesn't really seem to be doing anything due about that part of it. Like it just, it goes down. It, 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 it takes a lot with it as it goes. And so it's about making the, the best of it for ourselves and, and, and those who we love while that's going on. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. And you, it's like living in an insane asylum with poison food, although it's not like it. We are living in an insane asylum with the poison food and the crazy thoughts and the poison brains and the poisoned air. I mean, it's not, it's not, unfortunately, it's not just a illusion or a, you know, or, or, or a metaphor. <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's it's very it's it's scary and the worst part is like so 10,000 for some reason the last 10,000 years humans picked up which that's the mystery like why did we ever go for civilization why did we ever want to expand our populations to a point where the earth couldn't can keep continue to keep us there and be unhappy and slave have slaves and create patriarchy and 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 store stuff you know why what there's no that's that's the crazy part but at least before too, when you see all these civilizations that always collapse, they always will. You cannot have infinite growth on a finite planet. It's so awful to think of ours because it's worldwide. Those other ones at least rose and fell, you know, and they had to go back to living sane and sustainable ways. And now we've just, it's gonna, it's, we're in a very different predicament than being isolated on Easter Island or being in some, some community in South America or Europe or whatever, where they rise and they fall. You watch the collapse. They go back to sane and sustainable ways of living. 
And now those escape routes are getting pretty much choked off because of the mass amount. Like right now, it, when civilized, in, civil, the sooner civilization comes down, the better for the bacteria, the better for the mycelium, lichen, moss, force, every other living being. It might be pretty harsh at first, you know, because of the what's going to happen just with the atmosphere. But but life is going to have a better chance the sooner it happens to be able to rebound. But, you know, it's pretty tough for us humans and mammals because what's going to be left? You know, we don't have fish in our streams that are stocked full. We don't have bison. We don't have the, you know, huge herds of elk and antelope and deer. I mean, all that, all of our, our everything that we need for life, you know, has been kind of destroyed. Yeah, all the different, all the different um, plants and plant communities that that we helped to tend, in, in in not in an agricultural sense, but in a wild tending sense. All of those, a lot of those, uh, have been adversely affected, of course. Too, some of those plants are even on the verge of extinction, and the main culprit there again is is is, is ranching. Yes, yes, and the soil degradation that comes with the agricultural complex there. Right. Right. Yep. Well, we've been talking for a bit over an hour, and I and I love it. Uh, I, I feel like it's probably a good length too uh, for 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 one episode. So maybe we can talk again some other time, specifically when you have a, a campaign that you'd like to talk about or something, maybe um, like in detail. Uh, but maybe to sort of wrap things up here at the end, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're both people who can see these things that are happening in the world, and yet. Uh, we, we we still go on. We haven't, you know, swallowed the bottle of pills or <laughs> right. or, or whatever. So so maybe uh, if you have anything to say about it, you could say just something about what is it that for you that helps drive you, or uh, what is it you find in your work that helps you to get through these times. Yeah, I think I mean mostly it's like the it's a balancing act between uh, the grief that I feel at the the want on destruction and the imbecility of, of this culture and balancing that with the absolute beauty of life that surrounds me. So in every pine needle and every like Douglas fir tree and every leaf in the spring and every bird and every raven and all of the prairie dogs that I have been able to save uh, with our organization, which have been thousands in all of the you know, life that surrounds me, every sunset, every sunrise, every plant, like you're saying, watching everybody come up and, and just being so in love and getting outdoors a lot, hiking, paying attention, listening to the wind, listening to the trees, all of that stuff, balancing that with also the, the extreme need and the cry, listening to these others, because they're all to me when I listen in my dreams and I pay attention, they all are saying, you guys, you've got to stop this help stop this, stop killing us, stop killing us. And so I, that is my motivation in the whole thing is like, it may not look very promising. In fact, it does not look very promising when we logically look at what's going on, but I will, until I take my last breath, I will do whatever it is that I can, whether that's listening really hard and trying to get those messages, understanding what's happening and fighting for whoever I can while they're still here and trying to get people to do something, even if it never happens. That is, I feel that responsibility. I think that I have a, a responsibility because I love these living 
beings that surround me and that I, I am so lucky. We all are to be able to be alive in this moment and to experience being here on this miraculous planet and being able to be here with all this other life that surrounds us. So I try to keep this balance where I'm really upset, you know, about everything that's going on. And I feel this big, strong need to do something. And then I'm just devastated when I see those, the, the, the destruction that's happening on the land with people, the sounds of the planes, the constant engine roars, the, you know, skies that you can't see very brightly because of all the light pollution with the whole thing, like, look at everybody who's still here. And they need us. They need whoever understands. They need at least our attention. And they need us to to be there and to try to do whatever we can at whatever level we can. Like, you doing these interviews is excellent. Your writing has moved me many times, too, so I thank you for all that. But whatever that we can do in our own individual capacities, we all have our talents, and to just do it and to just – at least hold that responsibility and that that love and and compassion and need for action and and keep doing whatever it is that we can to try to save those that we love those who we love that's beautifully said Deanna. i really appreciate that thank you thank you just to close it out can you tell our listeners where they can find more information about you and your organization and 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 how to help or contribute sure uh, we have a webpage, prayerprotectioncolorado.org. We also are on Facebook on Prayer Protection Colorado. I'm also involved with Deep Green Resistance, which definitely has the um, a really good plan in place for what to do um, with their decisive ecological warfare. You can find that online. And if you want to email me, see how you can get involved here in Colorado or uh, how you can get involved in any other way, my email is prairieprotectioncolorado at gmail.com. Cool. Thanks so much, Deanna. I really appreciate it today. And, and I hope that we can uh, talk again in the future. Definitely. Thank you so much.